Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast where we're rereading Check Please now that it's over so that we can reassess how we feel about it. And today, today, this very day, we are going to be talking about comic 2.9, Parse Part 3, which was originally burst for the universe on February 20th, 2015. This is the second time we've recorded this episode because my father died while we were recording it the first time two weeks ago. I'm Secret, and who's with me? Hey, I'm Tomato. Yeah, this is the first for us, uh, recording something and then recording it again. Usually it's just like we do it one time and whatever happens, happens. But this time too much happens. So let's take it from the top. Biddy climbs up to lock his bedroom from the dangers of drunk frat dudes. And while upstairs, he overhears the edges of an argument coming from behind Jack's closed door. Biddy, startled and rooting around for his key, freezes outside Jack's door as he hears the final moments of the argument. In a moment that sent the entire Checklist fandom into a psychosexual frenzy, Biddy drops the key and kneels to pick it up just as Parse leaves Jack's room, settling his baseball cap back on his head as he tells Jack, I'm sure you'll make your dad proud. Jack, shaking, slams back into his room, and Biddy is left alone in the hallway, clutching his key and worriedly looking at Jack's closed door. So before we get into anything, I think we should read the argument, which we have practiced now several times. Um, So in part because I think it's funny and fun and a good way to think about what actually happens during the argument, and in part because I think we need to get back to the text because so much has been said about this argument that actually hearing and thinking about the actual words being said, I think will help in our discussion of it. But mostly because I want Secret to do the Jack accent throughout this argument. Well, the one thing I'll say before we read through this is in the summary, you wrote his baseball cap of emotional distance. And I think that's it's very funny. I like that a lot. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, great. Well, okay. All right. Okay. All right. Good. No one's getting up the second base up here. You have no clue. I mean, it could be Montreal, it could be LA, okay? I don't know. What about Las Vegas? I, I don't know, okay? Kenny, I can't do this. Jack, come on. No, I, uh, Kenny. Zims, just fucking stop thinking for once and listen to me. I'll tell the GMs you're on board and they can free up cap space. Then you can be done with this shitty team. You and me. Get out. Jack. You can't. You don't come to my fucking school unannounced. Because you and shut me out. me in my room. I'm trying to help. And expect me to do whatever you want. Fuck, Jack. What do you want me to say? That I miss you? I miss you, okay? I miss you. You always say that. <laughs> well, shit. Okay. You know what, Zimmerman? You think you're too fucked up to care about? That you're not good enough? Everyone already knows what you are, but it's people like me who still care. Shut up. You're scared everyone else is going to find out you're worthless, right? 
Oh, don't worry. Just give it a few seasons, Jack. Trust me. Get out of my room. Fine. Shut me out again. And stay, stay away from my team. Why? Afraid I'll tell them something? Leave, Parse. <clears throat> hey, well, call me if you reconsider or whatever. But good luck with the Falconers. I'm sure that'll make your dad proud. Slam! <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll go find like a door slamming sound and put it in. Um, neither of us is actors, so uh, thanks for going along with us there. I've been in several musicals, and the acting was not what I was getting third tier roles for. My the height of my theatrical career was in eighth grade when I played Mrs. McAfee in Bye Bye Birdie. And uh, that's it. That's the oh my highest. God. I- you want to know what song is amazing? The song Bye Bye Birdie. That song still routinely gets stuck in my head. Oh, I just love like Anne Margaret's like whiny singing like Bye Bye Bird. Like it's just very, very like character singing. And I really love it. That's exactly the version that gets caught in my head, which is which would be fine. And I also enjoy except that it gets caught in my head at like very irritating and inappropriate moments when I should not have that song in my head. So then I just have Anne Margaret like, yeah, bye. <laughs> like just screaming and belting in my head when I should be like being serious about stuff. The so, army's got you now or like whatever. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, well, that's my claim. Move on to a less gay topic. Check, please. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, also, we should note for the historical record, if you're listening to this in the future, um, in addition to things happening in Secret's personal life, Joe Biden also just probably won. I mean, he did win. We'll see what happens. But when the presidential election, so I'm crazy because the past week has been a long, slow, bizarre water drip experience of an election. So um, that might explain some of the energy happening here, too. Or are we doing like notes at the top? There will be two runoff elections for Senate seats in Georgia. The elections will be happening on January 5th. For the love of God, if you don't live in Georgia, please find a way to get involved with these two elections. It is not only extremely important that the Democrats win the Senate, it's actually just like a personal dream of mine to see Democrats win in Georgia. Because as listeners of this podcast may either remember or have intuited at some point, I spent some time in Georgia. And what was very obvious to me is that it is effectively a purple state, if not just like, you know, a lean blue state. But systemic problems in the state have effectively like kept people at home, both because of outright voter suppression methods and also because the Democratic Party in that state is so incredibly demoralized. I'm not saying it's like an easy do. I'm not saying it's not gonna take a lot of work, but it certainly is possible with a lot of work. So if you have questions about how to volunteer for the Ossoff campaign, the Warnock campaign, or other efforts in Georgia, such as Fair Fights, please get in touch because I have been uh, 
volunteering for those campaigns throughout the cycle. And money's not bad either. I don't think it's as good as time, but certainly it'll be helpful. It's not over. We can do it. We can't do it easily, but we can do it. Maybe, I don't know. I wish I'd come up with something like I made like a pin of Biddy's face or something to like give to people who donated money or some shit like that. But I didn't, so... Maybe we can figure something out. I've already donated and I'm planning to phone bank. I haven't been working with those particular things this election. I've been working closer to my coast. I've been working mostly in Arizona, but um, I'm, I'm getting involved as well with these runoff races. So I'm not as much of an expert as Secret, but I don't know. Let us know and we'll do something for you. Like, you want to read about Biddy's fucking machine? You know where to come. You know what I'm saying? What's your what's your rate for for Biddy's fucking machine thick? Well, I didn't think it before I said it out loud. I don't know. Donate 50 bucks and get uh, 500 words Biddy's fucking machine. <laughs> Listen, we we've had many discussions about Biddy's fucking machine, so I have a lot of specs, you know. I've got some diagrams. No, I don't have any diagrams, but I I do know sort of what's happening. So uh so yeah, yeah, I'll get that ready. I refuse to write it cannot be sexy though. I will not write you sexy fucking machine fic. It can only be bizarre. And that's not because I don't believe in sexy fucking machine fic, it's just because I personally am incapable of writing it. I maintain that if you're already listening to this podcast, the idea that bizarre is sexy is inseparable from the text of check please speaking of let's get back to this uh let's get back to this strip i think at the top of this what we need to do is make a distinction between who this character is within the story and what is happening in the text and how Kent Parsons' role in the story plays out in terms of the plot that ends up being represented on the page. And then all of the other stuff, what I would maybe call like critical historiography of Kent Parson or reception theory of Kent Parson. So how people reacted to Kent Parson, how he was constructed outside of the comic proper and then how those things relate to what ended up happening to him within the text, because I think that both of us would just like argue what happened to him outside of the text plainly ended up influencing what happened to him in, in terms of the comic. So these things are interrelated. They're not unrelated. But to a certain extent, they are separate issues. And for this particular episode, we are mainly going to talk about what is happening in the text of this comic. However, there is a point at which it becomes essentially impossible to only discuss what's happening in the text of the comic because we cannot divorce ourselves from like the paratext and the rest of the context that we know exists. We are going to record, or we've at least been planning on recording, a fourth episode about this arc that is that is basically based on the blog posts and some other paratexts surrounding these particular comics. So keep an eye out for that. As Secret said, we'll be mostly thinking about the actual text of this particular strip, but the text of this strip and the reason that we're looking at it is not divorceable in my mind from like the reception of this strip. So there's probably going to be a little like sort of specter throughout. All right. So working through bit by bit, we're going to analyze the text and then at the end we'll, we'll sum up and that could be a real mess. 
Here we go. Biggie comes upstairs and he says, no one's getting up the second base up here, which I think is literally implying that Jack and Kent are getting up the second base. Right? Yes, that's the only way to read that, in my opinion. So then my next thought about this was, what is second base when you're two cis guys? And after thinking about it a little and also Googling, I guess it's like groping and matters related to groping, for example, hand jobs. I think that that's very believable given the general dishevelment we see them come out of the room with, seems likely. I also just don't think there's any other way to read at least the implication of Biddy asking that question. Why else would he be asking it? I mean, obviously in universe there are reasons, but in terms of communication uh, to the reader, Nah, it's just because someone's hands are down someone's pants. Well, realistically, there's no reason why Biddy would say anything to himself as he's walking upstairs unless he's a fucking loon. So, well, I mean, maybe, you know, he's got that problem where because he's filmed so many videos of himself, he forgets that he's not actually on YouTube at all times. So he feels the need to comment. Oh, yeah, he's a fucking loon. But like, yeah, I mean, the only reason why this line would be on the page is to manage expectations for the reader of like what's happening in the comic. Right. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't tell you anything new about Biddy that he's like saying this to himself as he steps onto the landing or whatever. Right. It's a way of uh, sort of... I think gesturing at what we can't know because the door is closed. There's like a negative space there, right? And this is a way of giving a shape to the negative space and the shape is a dick. Um, so the argument between uh, Jack and and does start with phallic shaped objects if you consider a hockey stick to be a phallic shaped object, which eh, maybe, um, semi, um, but it really starts with hockey because everything about these guys gets totally subsumed into hockey. I mean, we've seen that with Jack since the very beginning. How do you read this moment? Like how, why is Kent trying to convince Jack to come to Las Vegas? What are his motivations? It's a very like eighth grade lit teacher question about this text. Obviously, Maybe it's not obvious. I don't know. People have all sorts of different wacky interpretations of of this particular strip. But to me, it seems evident that it would be a combination of both. He literally wants to play hockey with Jack. He thinks that they would be a successful pair again. Also, probably he wants the emotional connection with Jack. He wants Jack back in his life on a personal level, potentially romantically, perhaps even probably romantically, but certainly at least like they have a really strong connection that he obviously wants to rekindle. And I think to your point about everything being about hockey, these two things are not separate issues. They're very much intertwined. It's the complete package. And a lot of people writing about Kent Parson and making meta about what's motivating him here have effectively pointed out that he, Kent Parson meaning, seems to be pretty well into the closet. And even if he is not entirely, 
it would be very difficult for him to find real confidants or romantic partners without serious risk to himself. So having somebody who he's into, who he doesn't need to effectively go through like a potentially tricky dating process with, who he can integrate into his crazy NHL life and who basically is in the same position that he is in. They, they have effectively like a mutually assured discussion situation, mutually assured destruction situation where what's harmful to one of them is harmful to both of them. You really understand why he wants this because it's effectively like the complete package. Um, I think that your point that hockey and sort of like emotions are inextricable is really, really important, not only for this particular relationship, but for check please as a whole, like over and over again, we see the way that people interact on the ice as an exploration or a manifestation of their relationship off the ice. Like we see Jack and Biddy, their relationship growing better and Biddy becoming, you know, Jack's, uh, winger in a, in a, in an effective way with assist. Um, and we see that as a manifestation of their improving relationship off the ice. We see this with Ransom and Holster, whose preternatural friendship is mirrored by their preternatural like D-man pairing, right? And um, next, next, Dursey, oh no, <laughs> Dex and Dursey, and their, uh, their volatile relationship is reflected by pro- problems that they're having on the ice. So this is obviously true too, right? In real life, like not in the fictional world of Check Please, your relationship with someone and how much you trust them and how much you can read their body language is going to impact how you play on the field um, or ice rink or whatever of whatever sport you're playing. <laughs> I think in Check Please, there's like a very specific role that playing has in representing what's happening between two characters. And so like the fact that Jack and Biddy, for example, work well on the ice together, even before they get along that well, says something about their, you know, their destined romance or whatever. So the fact that Jack and Kent have this like very special ice bond says something about the nature of their like very specific romance, right? I think there's something about the way for Jack specifically that like physical manifestation of emotion is more impactful and more useful than speaking about it. And that's probably in part because of his characterization. And it's probably in part because this is a comic. So visual language is as or more important often than the actual spoken language. Um, And so Jack's body language and body language with others is a huge part of his relationships. Well, I think a lot of people have written six effectively about that. Like, I think that's one of the primary theses of people who are into post-canon or canon diversion Jack Parsfic is effectively like, oh, one of them gets traded to the other's team where they somehow end up playing hockey together again. And through having to play hockey together again, their romance is rekindled or they become close again because now they're on the ice. As soon as they start playing hockey together again, it's like muscle memory. They remember, you know, what the attraction is. It seems like they remember what the attraction is because they get together like almost immediately upon Kent, like walking into the house, like they're 
hooking up. This panel where they're making out with all the ellipses, something that's really cute is that the thermostat is marked with a little note that says touch and die, and it's signed by BK or Byron Knight. What's his middle name again? Sterling. This reminds me of what you pointed out a few strips ago about the house's corkboard, where there's a lot of information conveyed in just the image. And it reminds you a little bit of video games. This kind of reminds me of that as well. There's like a lot of information in this little this little image. And I think that it is a nice reminder that this is happening in a place and time that like Shitty is just downstairs and their party is still going on. I think it's not only cute, it also is like very much placing this in a in a different time than Jack's and Kent's former relationship. You know what I mean? So it's doing like scene setting in a very important way. And it's giving information about Shitty in the house, which is pretty, pretty great. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a cute little it's just a cute little background detail that's often unremarked on, understandably because the main thing that's going on in this panel is that Jack and Kent are making out and they're having a little conversation as they're doing it. There's some information in the back of the second Kickstarter volume on page 194, and Gozi writes, "Comics are a funny medium." Without sound, you can only guess what is going on when Jack is interrupted and ellipses appear. It's kissing. Furthermore, how long do those ellipses last? And I would read this comment to mean that she's implying the ellipses last for a while. I mean, I guess you can imagine whatever you want to, like, you know, kiss, 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 get out, or like, whatever. Yeah, I think I think she's suggesting that they're actually making out for a bit. And it's also difficult to assess what's happened before Biddy has walked into the frame to overhear this. Were they making out before they started having the exchange that Biddy stumbles into? Or is this the first time they've actually started like getting physical? Like did Kent interrupt a hookup they were already having to sort of like ask, you know, what team are you gonna end up on? Or is he introducing like the physicality into the conversation at a point where they've only been having a discussion at this point? And we just don't know is the thing. There's no way to know. So we're missing context that if it existed would really help with the interpretation of this particular this particular moment. But of course we don't have it. So it's effectively this like mystery box or like Schrodinger's, I don't know, make out or whatever, where it's just impossible because the text doesn't assign a meaning or doesn't give the context that would be necessary to fully understand how to place this particular making out. Biddy like walks in on a conversation that's already in progress. So interpreting what's happening is in part intentionally vague because we don't know what was going on in the conversation or how long it was going on for before Biddy walked in. 
we're not sure if they've been hooking up for like a while, like they've been kissing for a while and then they've been sort of going in and out of conversation and getting back to it. Or if they've been having a conversation that's been like amping up to this point and Kent is punctuating his pitch by starting to make out with Jack or what? I mean, the point is you don't see, you can't know. All we have is what is on the page here. And that is part of what leads to like wildly multivalent readings of this particular scene, because regardless of whether or not you're conscious of the sort of, I don't know, Schrodinger's arguments thing that's happening within this particular, like the mystery box essentially of like what was going on before, regardless of whether or not you're conscious of that or regardless of whether or not you try to make an unbiased reading, everybody is just sort of naturally going to bring their own context into this scene because it's not given to us. And of course that is literally what Biddy is doing but it's also something that most readers do, even if they're not conscious of it. You probably have some concept of whether or not you think that they just start kissing at this very moment and then it's relatively truncated and Jack immediately like shrugs it off and is like, I can't do this. Or if you think they've been like hot and heavy for a while and you know they take a breather you know, to spit or whatever. And then um, Kent is like, so where do you think you're going to end up? And then they start having this conversation. And then, or if it's just been this like messy back and forth thing that's been going on for a while, you just don't know. But you can imagine all of these scenarios might have been happening. And that's part of like what makes this both so tantalizing and also so hard for the fandom to sort of like collectively agree on the meaning of the scene it's impossible. You just don't know. It's never clarified. It's not there. You can make different guesses. I think also the fact that there's no tone, of course, because it's written dialogue also significantly makes it difficult to understand like how each thing is being said and in what context. And that leads to these, as you said, multivalent readings, which I mean, the scene does have the possibility for multiple readings. That's like one of the things that's most interesting about it. But I think they were making out for a while. That's just my instinct. Everything surrounding this comic, all of the paratext about it has always sort of suggested to me that like their sexual magnetism was a lot. They're very attracted to each other. It's just that there are these other like fundamental miscommunication and logistical issues that prevent them from being together. However, I also do try to be aware that like, that's just me and that other people see this as Kent making an attempt to get Jack on board by like using sex or something and that that's manipulative and part of a pattern of abuse that's happening here. And we can talk more about like whether or not this is abuse as we go forward and and when we talk about the reception of this scene, I'll just say that that's part what makes this quite difficult is we're actually not seeing very much of a pattern of anything. We're seeing a lot of hearsay about their past relationship and then a truncated, very brief window into something that happened that we have almost no context for. It's definitely readable in multiple, multiple directions. 
Yeah, and not to get like too fucked up about this, at least right, not at this moment, but it's also very difficult to know, are we seeing a literal actual sequence of events playing out, but the only window we get to view it is the window that Biddy also has? Or are we seeing a version of something that's been filtered through his perceptions? There really is no correct answer to that question. It's based on what kind of reading you want to make of check, please. Yeah, exactly. Is this a reconstructed version of what happened through the vlog post that Biddy started three strips ago? Or is this like a faithful recreation of events? I don't know. And it's also it's also complicated because I, I do really think, and this is not a bad place to bring this up, that what you're supposed to you know, which which reading you're supposed to make kind of shifts throughout the duration of the comic. Like here, based on everything we've talked about in terms of framing and in terms of like paratext up to this point, it seems like we are supposed to be accepting that this is Biddy's biased recollection of what he's seeing, or at least that he is a flawed narrator because he doesn't have all the context. However, I think by the time we get to 419, the sexy secret strip that no one's allowed to see where Pars comes to the house during year four, I think that is supposed to be read as Biddy giving a straight recollection. What we see on the page is what he literally saw because it's what actually happened and his version of events that he describes in that strip are literally what happened. So I feel like sometime between now and then, maybe like the framing was shifted. I think that's probably true. I mean, I think Biddy's voice as authoritative and worthy of like a certain kind of legitimacy and value gets increasingly weighted as the comic goes on like he starts and of course he is our proxy character who we see the world through most of the time so so there's a certain weight given to his voice because that's the closest to a narrator's voice that we get but i think the comic stops questioning that voice towards the end at some point but at this part of the comic i think biddy is still Biddy can still do things a little bit wrong, I guess, at this part of the comic, it seems to me, where he can do things that still have a little bit of like um, authoritative nuance to them in a certain way. Uh, By that, I mean that he isn't necessarily like, he is the protagonist, but he is not necessarily the like authorial force around which the entire strip rotates to the exclusion of all other like narrative forces. The multiple readings of it, are not only how you read this moment and how you have traditionally read or might continue to read Biddy's like interaction with his own blog post, but also how you view Biddy as the proxy character, how much you identify with Biddy, how much you identify with Jack, what parts of them you identify with and like what parts of this look like parts of your experience with baggage you're bringing, right? And because it's so vague, the phrase Jack, come on, could mean so many things, right? It could mean like, let's keep making out. It could mean- Jack, come on my tits. Exactly. It could mean come to Las Vegas, like don't fight me. It could mean you're giving me a look and I don't want you to give it to me, but the audience can't see it because the door is closed. I mean, it could mean anything. So many people have read into this moment things that I don't read and I read into this moment so many things other people don't read that it's 
I don't know. It's vagueness is pretty impressive for being such a compelling scene. But I think that's also true to how people talk a lot of the time. Well, it's compelling because it's vague. And to that point, I think at the moment when this comic is being published and maybe for like a year after or whatever, February 2015, we're supposed to be reading Biddy's position as the protagonist as effectively like we're supposed to identify with him because he is going to find out more. He's going to piece together what happened and what's happening. And we're going to go along with him. And that's basically what you've been doing in terms of Jack's backstory up to this point. It's like, we have gotten information about Jack's backstory when Biddy has gotten information about Jack's backstory. So it's not that Biddy is interpreting wrong or he's, you know, an unreliable narrator in the sense that like he's bad and we're supposed to think he's bad. It's just that the motor on which the story is running is that he doesn't have all of the information. So neither do we. So whatever interpretation he ends up making is part of his like discovery process, the story that's being told. This is effectively something that by the end of the comic is no longer the function of Biddy in the comic. He is just like a hero and everything he thinks, everything he says, everything he relates, everything he's involved in, we're just supposed to take at face value. I guess that's just one of the 80 things we're going to have to test as we continue to read to see if that stands up to scrutiny. But I think that's the difference between this scene and a scene like the scene in 419, where here he's getting like a little bit of information. He's not really doing anything with it. I mean, he's concerned for Jack, but he's not necessarily like acting on any information. He's just receiving it almost as if for later. In 419, he's basically just like monologuing because behind the scenes while he was off camera, he got all the information. The reader wasn't privy to any of it and he put it all together. And now he's basically saying like, this is what happened and I've made a judgment and the reader is supposed to accept my judgment. So it's like a shift of like how the storytelling is happening. Kent calls Jack's team the shitty team. Which team do you think he's talking about? Well, that's kind of the question, isn't it? My original reading, and I think most people's original reading, was that he meant Samwell men's hockey. First of all, he's in the hockey house. He's in like the, you know, Samwell men's hockey space. So obviously the kind of antecedent is like Samuel men's hockey. And some people have pointed out objectively compared to like where Kent Parson is, they are a shitty team. Like they're a college D1 hockey team that isn't winning championships, at least not yet. So compared to like a professional hockey team with like a much higher, more elite level of play that has won Stanley Cups and probably is like very competitive, like on a year by year basis. Yes, they are literally probably shitty. It's also possible that Jack has had more communication with Kent Parson than we're 
told and Kent Parson knows how Jack feels about the team, which is that he views it as a step down that he has to take in order to like go through a process of self punishment for redemption. Like that is the text. And that's a, a, a theme that carries through the very beginning in the hockey prince all the way to the very end of the comic, like the final strips where he's proposing to Biddy and he's basically saying like, I thought this was a step down for me. I thought this was something I had to do as a punishment, but you showed me it wasn't. So we do know like canonically that was Jack's thinking. So if you want to interpret that Kent is talking about Samuel men's hockey, then it's not a nice thing to say. Like he probably shouldn't have said it, but it's not like an unforgivable, unreasonable thing to say based on the context, I'm supposed you could also read it as like, Kent hasn't discussed this with Jack before, but he knows Jack well enough to know what Jack's thought process is and the reason why like this hurts Jack so much or offends him so much is because he knows it's true. He knows he's being read effectively. And I think honestly, that's what's going on a lot here in this, in this strip as we'll talk about, or at least as I'll talk about. However, recently, I have also read a couple people posit that perhaps what he's talking about is the Falconers. They're obviously talking about where he's gonna end up and at the very end of the strip, he lets on that he knows that Jack is going to end up on the Falconers. So it's possible that indeed that is what Kent means. You can be done with the Falconers and just get on the aces and like go forward from there. Oh, I was in a similar boat as you the first time I read this. I read this as a rejection of the Sam Wellman's hockey team and Jack's sort of like strong reaction as a repudiation of Kent's dismissal of, you know, his friends. But I actually think that it's readable in both ways. And I think, I don't think that Kent would have a reason to dismiss SMH. Like it's not a threat to him in any way, or it's not going to separate him from Jack any more than it already has. The sort of thing that's on the horizon between them is the Falks. And so I, I actually do think that the reading of the Falks is like an important reading. I think the ambiguity is important. I think the ambiguity of like every single statement in this argument is important. And the d- double readings that are possible are like part of what make it such an interesting piece of writing. Those coexisting meanings are really important. But I do think that the Falconers are like more present on Kent's horizon because like why would he care about Samuel men's hockey Jackson was going to graduate doesn't matter I guess he could be saying like be done with this shitty team and come join the real world where you're supposed to be and that's a kind of dismissal of like Jack's experiences that Samuel but I, I can read it either way now and I do think that there's a strong argument in favor of this being for the Falks because of that last line I'm kind of like squarely in the middle with one foot slightly over into the Falks territory. Some people historically have pointed out that evidence that Kent Parson is shitty is that if he does mean that the shitty team is Sam Wellman's hockey, it's like hypocritical and crappy of him to have like had a fun time partying with them downstairs, but really he's being two-faced because he thinks they're shitty. 
that I don't agree with. I think you can very much like have fun with people and be genuinely kind to people and also think the hockey team they play on is not very good. I just don't think those two things are like mutually exclusive. I think that's taking on a little more bias because you want to find evidence in the text that the character is reprehensible rather than a straight interpretation. It seems highly improbable that unless Kent literally wants Jack to get onto the aces right the fuck now and sign on as a, an unrestricted free agent and leave college seven semesters into an eighth semester degree, which seems really stupid. The way that this is phrased doesn't really add up to a clear intention. Something that we often maybe don't give enough credit to in reading this comic or maybe just reading in general is that it's possible that Kent really doesn't have a clear intention that he's just like frustrated and the result of the past six years of watching Jack slog through this extended drawn out process of getting into the NHL when he probably could have gotten into the NHL five years earlier is just like, oh, like when can you just be done? And he may not actually have like as airtight and rational an argument informing the exact like word choice as we're forced to read it as people analyzing a text. I never thought about that. And that's interesting because I think that Jack is not read that way in this. Like his responses are not read as having to be highly specific. And I wonder whether that's because of the different ways that these characters are framed in the text. Like Kent is always framed as super competent, smart, like an interesting hockey player and this mysterious figure. So there's a certain amount of like intelligence or something that's associated with him. Whereas Jack comes across, yes, as smart, but also as like a complete mess a lot of the time. So I wonder whether that has anything to do with it. Or if Jack doesn't come across as a mess, he comes across as a former mess. So I wonder if there's a little more like lenience with him. Well, Jack also is somebody who's like not really in touch with his feelings, seems not to in some senses actually know what he wants or why he's doing what he's doing. And he's not exactly amazing at articulating these things, even when he does figure it out. He tends to just act without vocalizing what he thinks. And we've remarked on this a lot and it has been remarked on a lot, but Kent does a lot more talking in this scene than Jack does. Jack doesn't explain himself. The most he really says is, you can't come to my school unannounced and corner me in my room. Everything else he's saying is reacting to what Kent is saying. And often these sort of like, um, mm, I don't, uh, I'm not sure. Like he's not, he's cutting himself off and he's trailing off and he's kind of stumbling over what he wants to say. And he's just making very short brusque statements like shut up, get out. He's not really engaging in a conversation. On the other hand, like I said, Kent is kind of articulating what he wants, what his intentions are. He's describing a plan of action. So he is somebody who is, if nothing else, 
more able than Jack to describe what his thinking is. He seems to have really like figured something out here. He's come here with intention and with designs to make a very specific case to try to get a very specific result. And to a certain extent, that is like a more, I don't know, calculated, if you wanted to use a kind of like negative word, and also more sort of like self-aware approach than Jack has. And like when Kent says, stop thinking for a moment, Jack needs like a really long time to sort of like seemingly think out everything in a way that appears to have been detrimental to him in the past. Yeah, stop thinking is this interesting moment, right? Because people have cited it as another manipulative tactic. Um, I guess I'm wondering, what do you think Kent meant by that? I mean, I really do think that, like, he probably knows Jack pretty well. He probably knows that Jack, like, overanalyzes things or it's a function of his anxiety that he hesitates to make decisions. And so he's trying to make the case that, like, this is easier than you're making it. You didn't have to go on this whole circuitous plan to like coach peewee hockey for two years and then go to Samwell and then become the captain of the Samwell men's hockey team and then lead the team to a frozen four in order to get into the NHL. It's like Jack has literally overthought all of this. Obviously, it ends up being like a happy comic where all the people we like win. So it seems as though that didn't actually have any sort of consequence for him. He just, you know, goes into the NHL and immediately wins the Stanley Cup and makes a ton of friends. But as we have discussed from like a hockey career perspective, that was not necessarily the right thing to do. To a, I don't think Kent is saying like, stop thinking because you should let me make all of your decisions. I think it's more likely that he's making the point that like, you're overthinking it. The way to get what you want is to just accept the offer I'm making you. And if you think about all the reasons why it won't work, then you won't do it. That's how I read it too. I mean, I read a lot of what Kent is saying throughout this whole sort of like argument as trying to get Jack out of a particular style of thinking or out of a particular pattern that he's familiar with, especially given their history and the fact that Kent was like intimate with him at the time of his OD. I think he's familiar with the consequences of Jack's anxiety. And so he's trying to like shock him out of it basically, you know? Jack does later tell Biddy in year three that like something like that could have really damaged our careers. That's why it was never a workable relationship. It indicates to me that he probably thought quite a lot about all of the reasons why something couldn't work instead of thinking about ways to make it work. And Kent may be frustrated with that. And I think that we can use that as a way to also talk about other things that he says during this argument, like that I miss you. You think you're too fucked up to care about, that you're not good enough, et cetera. The I miss you exchange 
is key to my reading of this particular strip. Kent says, I miss you multiple times. And then Jack's reply is, you always say that. And then Kent immediately becomes very angry. That's the moment where he like breaks and just starts getting like, you think you're too fucked up to care about. And he starts like lashing out instead of trying to like have some sort of discourse. And my reading of what's happening here is that he's saying he misses Jack because he misses Jack. And Jack is dismissing that idea, which is a way of invalidating Kent's feelings. Also, it's evidence of the fact that like, well, they've probably been had, like you always say that, it's like that kind of indicates that like they've had this go around multiple times, that it's not just that Kent came out of nowhere. And he's probably really frustrated that no matter how many times he extends himself, Jack just dismisses him. And this is a little bit reachy, but I do think it's supportable. Jack has like low self-esteem, at least when it comes to Kent Parson. What we're told by Shitty, or what Biddy is told by Shitty in the previous strip, is that when Kent previously showed up to Samwell, he was treated badly by Jack because Jack was, like, very jealous. And if you look at these things in combination, you maybe get the sense, as I do, that Kent keeps saying this earnestly because it's how he feels. But because Kent has what Jack has and Jack doesn't, he thinks that somebody in Kent's position couldn't possibly want Jack. So he's saying it disingenuously to be manipulative when in fact he's saying it for serious because that's what he feels for serious. I feel like what he's saying here is basically like, you think you're so fucked up and because you're not good enough, I couldn't possibly care about you or miss you, but I'm literally here telling you that I miss you and I still care and I've had it with this. I'm nodding so much that my neck hurts a little bit um, because I wholeheartedly with what you said. And I think there's also another element to this too, right? Like I fully agree with everything that you've said. I do not read this as manipulative tactic on Kent's part. I read this as a genuine expression of feeling. I also think that by saying I miss you, Kent is not allowing Jack to pretend that the OD in the past didn't happen, which seems pretty important to Jack's like whole situation, right? The way that Jack seems to get through things is by like getting over them, getting through them, suffering and getting out. And the fact that he shut Kent out in the past as Kent references suggests that part of the way that he kind of got over what happened was by shutting out the past. And by saying, I miss you, Kent is not only saying like acknowledging this past that they have together, but kind of like nodding to the fact that Jack did something so that Kent would have to miss him. Do you know what I mean? So I think there's also this emotional component as well, where it's painful for Jack to admit that Kent could miss him, not only for all the reasons you already laid out, but also because it makes 
Jack confront not only his OD, but also the fact that like, no matter what pain he was in, it's actually like not amazing to suddenly stop talking to your boyfriend after you like almost die. That's actually like not amazing behavior um, necessarily, even if you feel that you have to do it. And so, you know, it, it makes him confront this thing that I'm sure he isn't thrilled about. So I think there's also a bit of repudiation of that narrative too. Kent is reading Jack. And I mean, literally in like, you know, the drag queen sense, he's literally reading him. He's basically saying, you think you're too fucked up to care about that you're not good enough. He's describing Jack's thought process to Jack to indicate like, listen, I already know this and I don't give a shit. And the reason why Jack is so angry is because Kent is reading him. That's what's pissing him off. He's totally fine. I mean, maybe he's not super happy, but like he handles people wrongly judging him or speculating that he is worthless, actually, in a different way. He gets angry and storms out. He doesn't shut down. Or, I mean, with like the weird, you know, rumors about what his drug addiction was on campus or whatever, he seems to just like blithely ignore them, possibly not be aware of them. When people make fun of him for being dorky, it's just like either he doesn't give a shit or he's slightly pleased about it or he doesn't notice. Kent is accurately describing his worst quality, which is that he has every opportunity to get everything that he wants, just not in the way that he thinks he should have gotten it. And therefore he is a self-pitying, frustrating asshole who lashes out at the people who show him parts of himself that he doesn't like. Kent is cutting, like, too close to the bone, basically. And very few people probably do this to Jack, is the thing, partly because he's, like, largely unknowable. He's, you know, a a brooding mystery figure in a lot of senses. So few people probably have this access to him. But also, he's in a context for most of his life, both as like, you know, the exalted son of millionaires and also as part of like a regressive bottled up sports culture where very few people usually like frankly address what his actual like flaws as a human being are. And Kent is doing that. And I believe that's actually why he's so angry. As we've talked about before, Jack, Biddy, and Kent all kind of act as foils to each other in different ways. In this moment, we see the way that Kent does not paper over Jack's flaws the way that Biddy does. I mean, Biddy at this point in the comic is, you know, blinded by the light of his crush. So all of Jack's sort of navel gazing and self obsession and former meanness sort of just get brushed under the rug and and Biddy has rose-colored glasses when he looks at him and wants to hear all about Jack, you know, and and doesn't really push back on any of that. Whereas Kent here, of course, this is a more 
intense conversation than I think the conversations we've seen between Jack and Biddy for the most part. Ken isn't doing that. He's not papering over Jack's flaws. He's not brushing the past under the rug, right? He's like bringing everything out into the light. And I think I think that that's like says something about maybe part of Biddy's appeal for Jack. I do think that this argument gives us a peek into other ways of engaging with Jack if you're not his younger teammate who has a big crush on him, you know? Yeah, well, for anybody who's listening to this podcast and sort of wondering, when are you guys going to actually address what the appeal of Biddy is to Jack or like what the mechanism of their mutual attraction is. I'm kind of waiting for them to get together. Yeah, as as contrast, it's interesting. I mean, Biddy is afraid of Jack, maybe a little bit less so by this point in year two than he was in year one. But Kent is not afraid of Jack. He's not afraid of Jack. He's not impressed by Jack. He's not any of the things that keep other people from withholding judgment. Jack is an asshole to Biddy for most of year one. And Biddy just sort of accepts it. And then he passive aggressively goes and like gripes about it to his vlog audience. You know, it's like he knows that his his audience is is going to accept his version of events. And like, here's the thing. I'm not saying like, oh, that spineless little twerp Biddy. He didn't like fight back with this, you know, much larger, much older asshole. He didn't stand up for himself. That's awful. Like in the same position, I probably wouldn't have either. But the fact is, regardless of whether or not it's okay or why he did or didn't do it, the point is he didn't do it. The idea of Biddy that he has is that Biddy will just kind of like roll with whatever. Whereas Kent Parson will not roll with whatever. There's a massive, massive debate in the fandom over whether or not what he's saying, you're scared everyone else is going to find out you're worthless, right? Oh, don't worry, Jess, give it a few seasons, Jack, trust me. I don't think this is him saying, I think you're worthless and everyone else is going to find out too. I think this is him saying, Ugh, well, you would be hung up on this bullshit. Why am I even here trying to talk sense into you? It's Kent's moment of realization that this is a lost cause. Jack is hung up on like an impossible issue that is nevertheless like fixable. And Jack is unwilling to fix it because it would challenge his personal narrative of like where he is and what's going on in his life. Yeah, I completely agree. I do not think he is calling Jack worthless. Some people do read it that way. And I guess, you know, that's fine. That's just not what I find convincing in the text. It is much more convincing to me that he is elaborating on something he knows that Jack thinks. I also just want to briefly say that we've talked a lot about how Ngozi is really, really good at visual storytelling and maybe less strong in the writing. I actually think that this strip is really well written. I love the ambiguity. I think that getting this part of Jack's backstory across in this way is really smart. And I think that this way of elucidating for the reader what Jack's sort of self-esteem and confidence issues are is also really, really smart through this cipher of Kent Parson. Like, I don't know. I think it's I think it's a really, really good way of getting across a lot of information about their relationship, about who Jack is, about who Kent is to Jack. 
it a really neat package. I just think it's really well done. This is like one of the best strips I think in the whole comic. And I think that this moment is part of that. I think that this moment of of multiple possibilities about everyone already knows what you are, but it's people like me who still care. Everyone's going to find out you're worthless. I think that different ways of reading that and the different ways of understanding their relationship through that is part of what makes this so good. But I don't think he's calling Jack worthless. I mean, genuinely, like genuinely, I think what he's saying is like, you've been around for a long time and everybody already knows what your deal is. I think he's referring to the fact that Jack is a self-pitying baby who like, instead of going into the NHL, basically through like an extended, like six year pity party to punish himself in the most like performative, visible way. This is the gayest like I've ever described Jack Zimmerman, just to be completely clear. And I've been saying he's like gonna join a bottom separatist movement and that he would enjoy a fucking machine and all sorts of other things like for a long time on this podcast. But I think yes, basically the like drawn out six year melodrama. Uh, Like, look, it's not that like overdosing on anxiety medication or being a drug addict or like very publicly failing to fulfill what you perceive as your own destiny, something that everybody, including your boyfriend, is able to basically follow through on. Obviously, that is in itself traumatic and disturbing. But at the same time, it's like one incident in the life of a 24-year-old man, he's basing his entire personality around this one thing that happened. And all of his decisions are effectively like a performance of self-flagellation. That's very gay. Oh, it is. It is. He's not saying you're worthless. He's saying you're afraid everyone is going to find out that you're worthless. But... Everybody already knows what your deal is. I do think the what you are and afraid I'll tell them something does point to Jack's sexuality also. But I don't think that Kent Person has ever indicated that he would share that information because why would he have not shared it already if you were going to, you know? Oh, that's interesting. You think that you think that everybody already knows what you are is him basically implying everybody knows you're gay? No, not necessarily, but... Well, actually, that's a really interesting reading, isn't it? That's never... I've never seen that come up before, but it's interesting, especially if you read it in concert with the Afraid I'll Tell Them Something, which is 100% about Jack being gay. Yeah, I've always read those things in conjunction, and I suspect that the what you are... And Jack's sexuality is related to his fear of being worthless. I can't say for sure, right? We don't have like a glossary of what Kent means in every word. So I don't know for sure that that's what he means, but I do think they might be connected. Yeah. I mean, surely Kent knows that there's like RPF of them, right? He must have Googled himself at some point. I fully believe Kent Parson is such a legend. He has never Googled himself. That said, yeah, he seems like the kind of person who would know. I mean, maybe he's never Googled himself, but somebody was like, did you see this, right? Like somebody, he has been made aware, I'm sure, of some way of his online situation with Jack Zimmerman. So I just, yeah, I I just, 
anyway, yeah, I think there's a connection there. And I do think that he might be saying what you are in terms of like, everyone already knows that you are a homosexual, et cetera. Afraid I'll tell them something. Yes. I mean, the answer is yes. Jack is literally afraid of that. Like he literally doesn't want that. I know like, you know, not too much more than a year from now in the timeline of the comic, he's very visibly and performatively coming out by kissing Biddy in the, like on the ice. But at the time that this comment is made, yeah, I mean, he goes on to tell Biddy basically like, you know, something like that could have really messed with our careers, implying that, yeah, the, the fact that he wanted to be in the closet was something that was very plain to Kent Parson. And to be clear, like Kent Parson also is in the closet. So one presumes that he isn't also afraid of like, you know, he, he obviously wouldn't want Jack to tell people stuff about him either. But first of all, it is this mutually assured destruction thing where it's like, oh, there were already rumors about them being gay together. So if one of them comes out, presumably that will at the very least force a lot of unwanted attention on the other one. It's also the case that Kent probably, based on what we're seeing here, doesn't consider the fact that they can't be publicly like out to be an impetus to them being together. Yeah, but he's not, he's not literally threatening to out Jack. He's not saying like, I'm gonna go downstairs and tell them you're gay. He's he's basically saying, he's like, again, making fun of Jack's like anxiety and like his paranoia and his like weird, like self flagellating bubble that he's like enclosed himself in. He's like, oh, you know, are, are you afraid I'm gonna go tell them something? Like, obviously you don't have his tone, but you can hear the tone that he's just like, why would you want me to stay away from your team? Why you think I'm going to tell them you're gay? Like, right. Which is a, I think you can read that as either like afraid of, I'm going to tell them something like a threat or afraid I'm going to tell them something like that's so ridiculous. And I tend to read more towards the latter. I think people who see Ken in other lights, see it as a, as a threat. It's like how every time I like, leave my mom's house she says like be careful or like every time i get in the car she's like be careful or anytime i'm walking to the bus stop she's like be careful and when she says that my reaction is always like oh i've decided not to i think i'll drive into the lake that's what kent parson is doing here yeah i i agree i agree like, yeah, like I, I'm going to be careful literally every single time I do anything where there's a possibility of me like injuring myself or dying. Like it goes without saying that I'm going to be careful. So it's funny that like her anxiety about my wellness as her child makes her like say this thing even though it's like completely needless. Jack is like, stay away from my team. It's like, why? Like, what's gonna happen? Like, what am I gonna do? I mean, I think that it is pointing to Jack's emotional 
anxiety and paranoia, as you said, and also like a certain kind of fragility that he has where if something goes wrong in the way he has set things up, he gets very upset. Like we see that with the hockey game where he gets mad at Biddy for getting a goal. We see that with him storming out after the mean news anchors are mean about him. And that's understandable. I think everyone gets upset when things don't work the way that they want them to. But I do think there's just this sense of Jack having this kind of like fragile self-construction, basically. And Kent is sort of threatening that in some way. And I think that Kent is like, I'm not threatening it. I'm just, I'm trying to help you, right? And, And Jack's inability to accept that for all the reasons you pointed out is is what why we end up here also functionally in terms of the overall plot of the story hinting pretty strongly that there is something to tell like there is more to know about jack and while looking back on this and never having read it without the context of like, you know, the end of year two and Jack and Biddy getting together. It's difficult for me to view this anyway, other than, oh yes, it's obviously about the fact that like Jack is into bot sex. It's also part of this like broader building of a story around Jack and the fact that he's got this like background shrouded in mystery and it's never clear within the text exactly what happened and how he got here. And there's many hints throughout the comic, even through like, you know, I think year three probably that something happened, that there's something to know that again, I I mentioned Biddy on sort of like a discovery process in terms of figuring out like, what was it that happened to Jack in the years before this comic started that led him to where he is in the comic? And it's Kent layering a little bit of detail that there is something to know. And I also think if you were reading this strip like in 2015 without the context of Jack being into guys, it's possible that you may have not made that specific association and just sort of wondered like, what is it that Kent has to tell? And when are we gonna find out what that is? I remember definitely taking this as a sign of Jack's sexuality, but I think it just added to the kind of air of mystery about like what actually happened. Because this is right after, this is on the heels of the strip with people's recollections about Kent and Jack's history together. So there's just a lot of, I mean, it's context is important in that sense. Like it set up this mystery and then there's this tantalizing piece of information, which is beginning to shape the key to the mystery, right? So I definitely read it that way. And then his sexuality with the phrase, afraid I'll tell them something seemed very clear. We haven't talked very much about the other thing going on in the strip, which is that Biddy is present. He's in this strip, but he's a passive observer who adds nothing to the entire strip. When the door is opened and it's revealed that he's been kneeling outside eavesdropping, Jack and Kent both give him like, a momentary look, but then they both kind of like ignore him. Kent walks right past him 
And Jack doesn't acknowledge him at the end of the strip either. He doesn't impact or affect or change the outcome of anything that happens here. If you removed Biddy and just showed this scene without the Biddy elements, it would not change anything. So his presence here is, I don't know, I guess it's like formalistic from the sense that like, well, we can only really know what like Biddy is showing us. And I think that that has been true up to this point in the comic. It, it isn't always like there are moments where we just depart from Biddy's point of view. It's a strict marriage to the, the form of everything being filtered through Biddy. Unless, of course, we're meant to believe that the plot was going to hinge on what happened here and then Biddy's perception of it or the fact that he had witnessed it would become important. He's like salty about Kent Parson and a little bit like, I don't know, aggressive toward Kent Parson later in the comic. But that's all his presence here really adds, is that he knows slightly more about Kent Parson than he would have otherwise, and he doesn't like what he saw. Other than telling us that somebody was giving someone a handjob, maybe, right? That's, like, very important information. But other than that, we, we don't get a lot. But I'm actually not sure that Biddy, like, is aware that anything is going on. Like, it seems as though... It seems like Biddy misses that they're kissing. Either he doesn't realize it or he chooses to actively not engage with it or acknowledge it. Because he seems, first of all, to actually be unaware that Jack likes men at all. And second of all, he seems, well, I guess we can talk about it when we get there. But when Biddy mentions that, when Jack mentions that he's had a relationship with Kent Parson, Biddy at least says he is surprised. Yeah, I mean, I think that Biddy is acting very, very much as sort of like the proxy for the audience here. And I do think that his presence here is doing something in the sense that it's giving a frame and it's giving a way for the audience to peek in on a moment that should be private. It also gives a sort of like forbidden sense to the argument. Like if we just saw the argument without Biddy's interloping, I think there would be a different sense of like urgency around it or a different sense of like secrecy around it because Biddy is there eavesdropping, which he probably shouldn't be doing. There's, there's an extra sense of like violation or privacy. I think that's given to the narrative. So I do think it, it sort of add things in a, in a meta textual interpretation sense in terms of the plot, Biddy's experience here does nothing, teaches him nothing, you know, shows us nothing. I mean, he, he doesn't need to be there. But I think in terms of the tone of the strip, it, it, it does something. So I think it's realistic that Biddy would eavesdrop on this. Like, certainly, if I stumbled onto this, I would listen to the whole thing. It, it's realistic, and I think it's, like, a good and interesting character detail. Like, I think it's the right thing to do, like, in terms of building a narrative and building a character. But to what extent is he in the wrong for eavesdropping on this whole thing? Well, I don't think he should do it. Seems bad. Seems bad to like put his nose in someone else's business in terms of like ethics. But as you said, in terms of character building, I think it's great. His fumbling with the key is a particular kind of narrative or self-justification or both to give him an excuse to be listening, right? 
Like, I don't know whether he's sort of like lying to himself, like, oh, I got to get this key. Oh, oh, you know, like while they're while they're arguing. Um, and that's sort of his self-justification for staying out there. But I, I, this is deeply private stuff from a deeply private person. He probably shouldn't be listening. Yeah, I mean, he's grossly fascinated by Jack. Like we've we've seen that up to this point. Yeah, I mean, this is one of these things where it's like human beings have a really hard time not listening to any conversations, but especially juicy conversations that they're within earshot of. But just because this is something that everybody does and it's pretty commonplace doesn't mean that it's like a good thing. And what's interesting about it is that Biddy is acting on his flaws, that he's doing something that's like not fully admirable. And also that he doesn't really have a moral heist place to stand on because to a certain extent, the vaguely mean, but mostly defensive things that Kent is saying here are not worse than like, eavesdropping on somebody's highly personal, highly charged conversation. It's just a different kind of gesture stemming from a different kind of flaw, which is interesting. And of course, I do not think that the comic like follows through on this at all. At this point, Biddy is the protagonist, but not the all correct hero. Not everything he does is right. So no, there aren't real consequences in a long lasting sense for him having eavesdropped. But I do think the door slamming and him being left alone in the hallway is something that would not happen like in the fourth year, for example. There is a certain kind of immediate consequence to that. And then his sort of shaken blog post that he starts over three strips ago or two strips ago shows that he's feeling some kind of emotional consequence from this too. Biddy is not above critique either by the text. That doesn't remain true, but I think it's true in this moment. Yeah, it's interesting that that intro to this arc with Biddy saying, have you ever overheard something you weren't supposed to overhear or whatever the the verbatim words he uses are? Well, we find out in this strip that the answer is yes, but we never find out like the and it's like we find out the answer is yes and the consequence is blank it's like there's no consequence he just has slightly more fragmented information than the fragmented information he had previously we talked a little bit in the previous episode about how the overall comic has a take about effectively like gossip or like spreading sort of like, you know, salacious personal detail about other people is like wrong, morally not okay. The way that people gossip about Jack Zimmerman is like harmful. The way that the Samwell Swallow is characterized in Paratexton within the story is like almost that those people are assholes and like nefarious, like they're up to something like sinister. 
And we've seen that when reporters on or sportscasters on TV are talking about Jack, the overall message about Jack is that like these people who were talking about him because they wanted like salacious morsels of information about him are like doing something wrong and they're bad people. But now Biddy is basically in that position where it's like he like he wants like the salacious information. And the fact that he is the person who's now in that position, I think means either one of two things. Either you're correct and it's that we're supposed to see this as like wrongdoing, not like, you know, unforgivable wrongdoing, but wrongdoing nevertheless on Biddy's part and that he has a flaw and he's not wholly morally upstanding. But then the comic changes track on how it views him later on. And therefore that little turn remains unresolved. Or the comic just has like a double standard where it's like, this is not okay unless Biddy is doing it. And then it's justifiable because Biddy wouldn't do it unless it was okay. Based on comments that Ngozi made about Biddy around this time, acknowledging some of his flaws, like being passive aggressive and so on, I have a feeling it was not the latter, but then became the latter later on. But I think at this time of the comic, Biddy was allowed to have flaws. He was allowed to like be both a little ray of sunshine, cinnamon bun, blah, 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 whatever. And also like passive aggressive and a little petty and a little kind of like shallow and desirous of gossip, et cetera. I think both of those things were true at the same time. And then I think at some point that shifted. Speaking of Biddy and his, you know, emotional depth or lack thereof, there's something interesting to me about this conversation between Jack and Ken. And it's that in this one interaction, there is so much more intensity and emotional intrigue to me, especially on my like gazillionth reading now, than there had been between Jack and Biddy through the entire first couple of years up to this point. Like there's so much pathos in this conversation it, and Jack and Biddy's conversations just don't have that. So I'm wondering, what do you think makes this emotional dynamic with Kent like so rich? compared to the emotional dynamic with Biddy. So Kent Parson is a cipher. Kent Parson and Jack's history, both in general as rela- and as relates to Kent Parson, is shrouded in mystery. That is tantalizing. It's literally compelling. You want to find out more about this. Moreover, Kent Parson is not just shrouded in mystery. He is a cipher. A cipher is not just mysterious because we don't know what it means. It's something that is like specifically coded or specifically encoded to have a particular meaning. And therefore, interpretation of a cipher necessarily involves figuring out what that encoded meaning is. And it usually results in like many interpretations of what that could be. 
So he's a cipher. He's masking something specific. And it's very plain that the project of Kent Parson within the text for the reader is to figure out what it is that he effectively means and stands for here. He also represents like real hockey or like the actual NHL. Up to this point, like, yes, we've taught, you know, Bad Bob was on an NHL team or two, and we've, like, had actual NHL players mentioned. But up to this point, all of our interaction with hockey has been through this made-up fake hockey team. But Kent Parson is in this universe's version of, like, the actual real-life NHL. He's being written into NHL real-person fiction. There's a large crossover audience for this comic with people who are in hockey RPS. And I think the idea that all of a sudden this character is here and now you can tell stories about real hockey not just interacting with like teams and characters you already know, but like tropes and concepts, you know, from like the construction of a fandom around hockey is I think really exciting to people. You can tell the sorts of stories that you would tell in hockey RPS, except now about check please. I think the dynamic between him and Jack is particular to some people's interests, by which I mean, like, some people see these two characters and they see, like, particular, I don't know, kinks or particular relationship dynamics that they just personally are interested in. I also think that Ken Parson represents potential and futurity. Everything about him is anticipation. Kent represents the promise of what his character was going to mean to the narrative. Meanwhile, Biddy's ultimate conclusion, he wins, his story is happy, he and Jack are going to kiss and touch butts, has been reiterated and assured like by the author over and over again. So even if you're not sure how that's going to happen and there is some sort of like sense of anticipation about how it's going to come about, you basically understand what's going on there. And that's not the case with Kent Parson. Why is he being introduced is not totally clear. What is it that he's going to do in the story is not totally clear. What Biddy's going to do in the story, basically being the protagonist and like relating incidents from his life, is hugely clear. That's very obvious. But like, who is Kent Parson and why is he here is a giant open question mark that is speculation fuel. I also think, and this is really important, Kent Parson represents like grief and loss, especially in comparison to Biddy who like seemingly doesn't know those things. In the context of the story, Kent has lost and presumably mourned what he had with Jack. He misses Jack. On the flip side, within the narrative, even when he's like in the comic through the rest of year two and the beginning of year three, he's not in every single strip. 
his appearances and references to him are relatively sporadic. So you can't help but notice him. You can't help but miss him if you like him as a character. And every time there's a potential for him to appear and he doesn't, you likely feel some sense of loss. But then, of course, he's written out of the comic effectively, or so we think. And I think just genuinely a lot of character, like a lot of people in this fandom are grieving for a version of the story that they thought they would have gotten through Kent Parson. Not to get too into this, but although I think that Kent Parsons' eventual disappearance is certainly impacted and informed by audience reception of the character, I actually think that by getting rid of him, he has a much more long-lasting impact because his storyline's not never resolved. And so there's this kind of like specter, you know, of Kent Parson throughout the rest of the comic because he's just never, he's never laid to rest. There is something not only to Kent Parsons representing grief and loss, but the intensity of emotion that we see in this is much more significant than the intensity of emotion we see between Jack and Biddy in any of their conversations in the past like year and a half, right? That they've known each other. Jack and Biddy's most intense conversations have been Jack talking about himself while Biddy listens in rapt silence. That's like the best their relationship has been until this point, as we talked about the past few strips, you know? Whereas this moment is like wrapped up in their mutual history, in the fact that Kent is not afraid of Jack, does not sort of like let Jack take center stage, has agency with him in a way that Biddy hasn't necessarily exhibited. There's something really compelling to me as a reader about two characters who are both agents in a conversation in a way that Biddy often doesn't seem to be an agent. And particularly in this strip is not an agent at all, like is silent and in fact a passive observer to the highest degree within the text that has particular implications. And then as a reader, for all the reasons that you just outlined, that leaves Kent with a certain kind of like narrative urgency that Biddy with his constantly reaffirmed happy ending, just we don't get like, I don't feel any urgency about Biddy, especially now that I read the whole comic. But even when I was reading this, yes, there was a certain amount of urgency And then after he and Jack got together, there was less urgency. And then by year four, there was like zero urgency at all. There was very little narrative propulsion. And in part, that was because of the constant reassurance of his happy ending. So yeah, I think there's something happening here where there are questions unsolved. There's like something to discover as a reader. And I think that's a huge part of it too. Well, I think it it is not necessarily clear at this point that, oh, the comic is basically about... Biddy and Jack having a romance and then they get married and Biddy is very happy the end. I think it was not yet clear whether or not there was going to be some kind of plot related to like hockey or something. We've also discussed a bit up to this point that like the framing of Kent Parson, both within the comic and within the like supporting materials around the comic, was effectively like telling people to be excited about this character. So it's like if all of the buildup leads to this moment, it's natural to think like, oh, all of these breadcrumbs, starting with like Hazapalooza and Ngozi tweeting and Biddy tweeting, and then, you know, the sort of blurry text in Jack's speech bubble in the 
scene where they're baking a pie together is like kind of leading us like a breadcrumb trail to this moment. And this is what we were supposed to be so excited about. Yeah, I, I mean, you've been told to be compelled by this character, by the author and the text. Yeah, and I fully that that was going to be part of the plot. It was not clear to me that this was a romance about Biddy winning at this point. Even the even the point when I read this, which was, you know, at the very, very beginning of, you know, at the sort of turn between years two and three, it was like Biddy and Jack had just gotten together and the comic was only half over, which implied to me that, like, that had to be settled before, like, the real story could continue on. So even when I read this... I presumed that this was setting up some kind of plot. Maybe it would have been a romantic triangle plot or some sort of like romantic rival plot. Or since Kent Parson is another equally good hockey player on an opposing hockey team, maybe this would have something to do with winning or not winning hockey games. And and then it didn't. I really did just ask like eighth grade literature questions on this outline and I'm sorry. That's okay because I feel like a lot of people in this fandom based on my experience of the past uh, four years greatly need eighth grade literature type questions to help their interpretation of the text. But we know from a couple strips ago that Jack Kent and Jack last spoke Maybe. I mean, maybe they have other private communication channels that like we're not privy to. But they last spoke at the house one or two years ago after Kent won the cup. And it really scared Shitty because of Jack's behavior. We also know from future strips that Jack abruptly stopped talking to Kent after his OD. And that's implied here when Kent says you're shutting out again. So I just think it's also worth thinking about, like, what would that kind of volatility in a relationship how might it impact how he's communicating here? And I don't think we have to go like deeply into it, but I do think it's a useful way of thinking about the way that he is expressing things, maybe not the most tactful manner. Many have made this observation, but if nothing else, it's not that Kent is here to make Jack feel bad. Jack is making him feel bad. So he's lashing out. Yeah, I, I mean, not not deliberately, I'm sure. I don't think that Jack OD'd on anxiety medication just to, like, be an asshole to Kent Parson. However, regardless of what Jack's intention was, he's probably been hurting Kent Parson in various small ways for a long time, first stemming from the fact that he considered their relationship to have a natural endpoint and wasn't willing to find a way to continue it. Then, because he effectively ruined the greatest moment of Kent Parsons' life when he's the first NHL draft pick by shading the entire experience with, like, probably a huge amount of like pain and uncertainty that now he like, he can't think of this as like a great day for him. Probably it's always going to be tainted by this thing that like Jack did that was probably really stressful and really awful for him as well. Not that that negates how traumatic it was for Jack, but nevertheless, it's true. Then Jack denies him catharsis by refusing to talk to him, 
they don't have a breakup conversation or anything like that. It seems like they never process this at all. So Kent walks around with uncertainty for many years. The fact is, the text never tells us that they haven't communicated, they haven't hooked up, they haven't seen each other, except for that one time Kent visited Samwell for the past six years. So it's possible, especially based on the you always say that, that they've been engaging in some degree of interaction, possibly including hookups, possibly including Kent trying to get through to him for many, many years. And Jack has possibly been sending him mixed signals. Kent Parsons shows up out of nowhere. He walks up to Jack. Jack seems surprised and not necessarily pleased, but also not necessarily like disgusted. Jack lets him into his room. They start having a conversation. They start groping each other and like hooking up. And then in the middle of it, Jack is like, I can't do this. It's mixed signals. So Kent probably is frustrated because Jack is like indicating to him that he's open to this. And the only reason why Kent isn't getting the answer that he wants is because Jack has decided that his answer has to be no. So it's this like really like deeply born, really frustrating dynamic that has probably caused Kent little harms and like little hurts over and over again for a really long time. It's possible that in this one moment, he has just finally had enough. He's extended himself as much as he could possibly extend himself and he has been rebuffed so many times that he is just hurt. We have literally no context or literally no proof that Kent Parson has ever lashed out at Jack like this or that he has been mean to Jack in like a pattern. What we've seen like in in the, the Parse 2 flashback scenes is effectively like communicating that Kent Parson was supportive or understanding or something like that. So people who suppose that Kent was always an asshole to him, unfortunately, there's no ground for that. I mean, please, by all means, write fix about it, explore it, hypothesize about it, like, you know, anything else. The more stories you can tell about this, the better. But nevertheless, it's a supposition based on a way you want to read a character or a fanfic you want to you want to write rather than like information enshrined in the text. So it's very possible that this is just a moment of somebody who's been hurt over and over again, finally hitting their limit and lashing out at the person who's hurting them. Now, comments made by the author and paratext created by the author following a turn in like mid to late 2016 suggest that that is not what she would now like you to take away from this. But based on what's here, I think it's plausible.
in terms of abuse, again, read whatever you like into this, especially for the purpose of like thinking through potentialities and creating fan works. But the author has said multiple times that he's not an abuser and there is no evidence within the text that he is an abuser. Now, there's also no like definitive statement within the text that he's not one. It wouldn't be non-canon compliant to write a fic where he was necessarily, especially if you believe that word of God is not canon. But we have no evidence that this is part of a pattern. And also, I, I don't think that what he's doing here is abusive anyway. It's like he ends up saying a few things that are like kind of dick. And maybe in like an ideal world, he wouldn't have said them. I don't think this is great. I don't know. I, I could go either way on him just like showing up at Samwell or like showing up at the house. Like on one hand, you know, yeah, it's like he wasn't specifically invited. It is sort of presumptuous of him to just roll up and think that like he will be welcome. If Jack has shut him out, maybe he should have read that Jack doesn't want to be contacted. On the other hand, he has new information and like a new offer to make to Jack that he thinks Jack will be receptive to. And the only way to get it to him is to basically go confront him. I don't know. I think I would do the same thing if I was like, listen, I really need to tell this person something, but they're not replying to me. I really think that like the reason why they're not replying to me is because they aren't aware that like I want to make them this offer. I'll try one more time to just physically go show up and try to tell them in person where they can't run away. I think I would do the same thing. Yeah, I probably would too. But to me, it seems like they do have some kind of channel of communication, like, I don't know, texting or something where they're in contact in some way. There's a certain amount of intimacy and then Jack shuts Kent out. There's a certain amount of intimacy and then Jack shuts Kent out. There's a certain amount of intimacy and then Jack shuts Kent out or whatever. The way the pattern is discussed in the fight makes me think that they do talk or something, right? Maybe sporadically, but... I don't know. That's how I read that dynamic. Doesn't mean that that's true. That's just how I feel about it. I don't even think it's especially textually provable. It's just how I think about it. But I do see that possibility there. In terms of abuse, I too think like, yeah, write whatever you want. I don't care. I would suggest that if you are interested in writing Kent is abusive, which again, live free or die hard about it. I don't know, whatever. It's also worth looking at Jack's behavior in the beginning of year one, which is also a pattern of pretty inappropriate boundary crossing aggression doesn't necessarily mean that you also want to write Jack as abusive and you shouldn't if you don't want to, but I do think it's like worth thinking about. And I also think that there's a very important context to this accusation of abuse, which is that in 2015, 2016, in sort of the discourse circles, fandom discourse circles that I saw in any case, Accusations of abuse were pretty common as ways of delegitimizing characters who people were not fond of or whose behavior they didn't like. Even if I wouldn't necessarily personally call that behavior abusive, I certainly saw that happen in various fandoms. And then by proxy, there was a 
you know, commutative property situation where if a character was abusive and you liked them, you were yourself abusive. So I definitely think that that pattern, which was much bigger than just check please, was part of what was going on here. That pattern has changed quite a bit, I would say. I think abuse is a less frequent um, accusation now than pedophilia. Pedophilia is what I see much more often, which is, of course, a kind of abuse, but it's a very specific kind of abuse. And that particular accusation has taken much more traction in the particular circles that I have like an eyeball in. But rather than the sort of broader interpersonal abuse that I think was popular a few years ago as a as a way of delegitimizing characters and people. But that's how I understand the context of this accusation of abuse for this character is that A, some people really read what he does as abusive. Okay, makes sense. And B, there was a very common pattern of saying that characters who were not cinnamon rolls, et cetera, like were abusive. So I think both things fit into that pattern. Honestly, I just don't think what he says here is like that bad. I think it's obviously the case that he knows Jack extremely well and he knows exactly what is going on with Jack. And so what he's saying is like targeted to have the maximum effect and to like shake Jack the most or like hurt him the way he's been hurt the most. And in a like perfect buttercup world, where everybody does the right thing all the time. No, that's not nice and it's not good. But much like Biddy's eavesdropping, it is the kind of thing that people do. It's very realistic human behavior. It's relatable probably to everybody reading the comic. Nothing he says here to me, maybe I just come from like, you know, the worst culture in the world. I mean, I I certainly do. But I just don't think anything he says here is like on the level of unforgivable. It's like the kind of commonplace shit that you like spit out disposably at somebody you're really close to, but also pissed at. And in the grand scheme of your relationship, it all just kind of comes out in the wash. If you have this much history and this enduring a relationship with somebody. I fully agree. And I also think that people can behave badly without being abusive, or they can say things that are mean or lash out at people without it being a pattern of abuse or a particular thing. And people get mad at each other and say things they regret doesn't make it abuse. And to me, because of the power dynamics of this situation, because of what else we don't know about the relationship and because of, I agree, I don't think what he says is unforgivable or, I mean, abuse can be like quote unquote forgivable, right? But uh, but I, I don't see this as something that is like indicative to me of a larger problem. Um, I, I don't see it as abusive. Abusive is not like a synonym for mean. It's possible that what Kent Parsons says here is mean, but like, you know, I've said like 50 mean things to my cat like today. It's different. It's I'm going to write a you for animal abuse yeah well here's the thing literally while we were recording he he basically like bit my neck so and now he's lying on the table literally between me the microphone and the computer giving me a look really he's the abuser but it's like 
abuse is not necessarily meanness. Patterns of abuse don't even have to encapsulate meanness. You can be abusive without ever saying anything mean to somebody. I'm not saying abusers are never mean or are never cruel, but they don't go hand in hand in a way that if you see a character being a little nasty, you can presume that they are abusive. Yeah, I agree. And and I think that also like, Check Please is this interesting experiment in fandom because it's it spanned two different fandom eras essentially. We can talk more about this, you know, at another juncture, but I think that Kent Parsons' reception to me was shocking in a lot of ways from other fandoms I had been in. I had never seen anything like that. Not in that way. I had seen other kinds of like ship war stuff, but I had never seen that particular tack taken. And that for me became a prototype for what then would become like sort of anti-culture or whatever. So, or purity culture or whatever you want to call it. So I think we can think about Ken Parson as this like interesting figure in part because he is ambiguous. Like he's not a villain necessarily. He's not coded as evil with an evil mustache dressed all in black and like laughing at, you know, the problems of the protagonist or whatever. He's just like a guy. Uh, How do I say this? I think the shift towards being more suspicious of that sort of behavior is kind of encapsulated in this strip and and the way people talked and reacted to it. I mean, I think that anti-culture, purity culture was already very much enmeshed in fandom at this point. Was it? I don't remember. I really think it was. Like, that's my recollection. I don't need to get into, like, the Kaiman Wars or whatever, but I really do think that, like, I'm not saying that there hasn't been a turn in how we talk about this stuff, but this, like, purity culture battle is something that has been endemic to fandom the whole time, like, for all of fandom. Oh, well, I agree with that. I guess what I mean is I have not seen the particular like strategies employed. Yeah, no, it, it certainly, it's certainly like it had already existed. Like this, this is something like 2015 is, is relatively late into like the Tumblr era, you know, that's like, I've also been in MCU where there is like something called Hydra Trash Party, which I, it's not the part of the fandom I was necessarily in, but which is like embracing very openly and loudly everything that like purity culture is not into. So maybe I was just insulated from that because of the particular fandoms I happened to end up in. But this is like, I mean, this is, this is like way into the like Tumblr snowflake SJW, like arguments over purity culture in fandom. I'm not going to like go on and on about it because this is already a long episode and nobody needs to hear about like takes on Cartman in like South Park fandom or whatever. I mean, people definitely do and we should do an episode about it. But like this culture of like, how dare you fave a villain is brimming. And it's also like, yeah, I mean, you know, Kent Parson is introduced in February. In December, the the new Star Wars franchise kicks off. 
And all of a sudden you have all of these debates over like Kylox and like, you know, which pairing is like, and you know, eventually Raylo. Is it okay to ship villains with people? And, and all this just like on and on and on shit. I had already been sort of like observing that in my fandom for several years at that point. I was like very much behind in learning what anti stood for. And I was like shocked when I learned that it was anti-shipping or whatever in its origin. I, so I forgot that I was super behind. How did I want to conclude? I feel like I've basically forgotten, you know, because we started talking about antis and Kaiman. Um, this strip is really good. Yeah, it, it, it is really good. And it's also in the overall arc of check please as it stands having the whole story told if i were like editing this text i would tell the author either do something with this character or get rid of this entire arc and don't include him but that's why i'm so convinced that the plan for what this story was going to be was changed because this is such a compelling, such a well-executed, such a like self-assured and riveting arc of this comic. It's in a lot of senses, the best this comic ever actually was. And then when you follow the rest of the story through, it's not really here for any reason, even arguably for any thematic reason. Yeah. It's just like somebody showing up and being given a huge amount of narrative weight and screen time. And then it's like an unbalanced story where this never comes back, like, you know, equally weighted on the other end. You know, your your storytelling arc is, is lopsided. I think it ends up serving an unintentional purpose, probably, where coming out is the moral correct thing to do and not coming out gets you punished. And I think that's what Kent's arc ends up being. And so he does have an arc. It's not a satisfying one, and it's not weighted equally on the other end as it is on the beginning. It just sort of fizzles out. But I do think there is an arc. So we'll have to look at it as we go forward, as I say about like every five things that we talk about. But I do think he ends up having like something to add to the story, and it's something really depressing. And that's why I love him. Well, and all and all the other things that we've already talked about, about what there is to love. Next time... We are going to look at the blog posts for these three strips. We have only really like referred to or touched on what ended up happening within the fandom about this character and all of the sort of like mechanics that went on. Oh yeah, here's what I wanted to say, cool. Talk about like a lopsided podcast. I guess it's been a hard couple weeks. My argument, and perhaps I will boldly assert our argument, is not that it's inherently incorrect to read him as abusive or 
a dick or whatever. I don't think that was at the time that these strips were written the intention. However, you know, it's art. Take away what you like. Make the fan work that you like. The problem is insisting that that is the only reading, the correct reading, and an even more damaging problem is insisting that people who do not subscribe to that reading and make fan works and posts that also don't describe to that reading are doing something wrong, perpetuating abuse themselves. I saw people literally make posts in like 2016 and 2017 that because Kent Parson is so awful, nobody should make fan works about him or talk about him at all, ever. That's the problem. Yeah, I co-sign. Your bold assertion of our was correct. Did I say bold? Whatever, fuck this. Yeah, next time we're going to look at a Kent Parson blog post and we're going to talk about you know, some of this other stuff. I'm going to make you all listen to me talk about Derrida. Sorry in advance, but also not sorry. You know, I just had to do a bunch of like Foucault related shit. And the whole time I was doing it, all I could think to myself was, this is so dumb and this is so stupid. Well, I promise to make Derrida dumber than he's ever been before. Great. I'm so glad. Not looking forward to it. Fuck that guy also. Okay. I Listen, 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 listen. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, you know my opinions about Derrida. He's handsome. That's like what he's got going for him. Anyway. Oh, God. I completely blocked that out. The fuckable French philosophers. Derrida. End of list. I didn't say fuckable. I just said handsome. That's all. Just like abusive is a synonym for mean, handsome is a synonym for fuckable. Then I have to talk unless, about unless you're talking about a woman, then it's a synonym for lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that note, goodbye. <laughs> Good night. Oh, allow me to say that I've been Secret OMG, and you can find me on Tumblr at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G. And I'm on uh, Tumblr. Wait, no, I already said that. I'm on AO3 as Familiar. And I'm Tomato. You can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can find our podcast on Podbean, on Tumblr at what are we? Check displeased.tumblr.com or on Spotify. Although given everything that's just happened, I don't know why you'd want to. Anyway, let me know if you want me to write you some words about fucking machines. I'll try to formalize something. Yeah, we'll we'll be in touch go about to it. Georgia. I encourage you to physically go there. I can't. I have a chronic illness. I can't travel anywhere. I encourage everyone else to get on a bus or rent a car and go down to Georgia and knock doors. I also cannot do this, but I encourage people to do it. And again, if you want to get involved, you can definitely ask Secret. You can also ask me about 
where I'm phone banking and I'll give you that info. And uh, yeah. All right, guys. Well, see you, see you back here. Oh God. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>Please is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.